0: appreciated the things that were shared in our time this morning of prayer uh, what's going on in Lebanon praise God for the church that he has planted there and the the lives that have been saved souls that have been saved in in just the last few years and how that church has grown we want to continue to pray for them Uh, in the men's prayer meeting this morning one of the brothers mentioned uh, our brother Pavlo and his wife Ina there in Ukraine and Kyiv it's a time of great turmoil and if you are paying any attention at all to global news you understand that uh, the Kiev and Russia and Europe and all of this is in great upheaval and so we pray for Pavlo and Ina and uh, brothers and sisters in that church there that God will use them to make the gospel known during this time This this world is not our home it is brief it is final as Phil mentioned and then looms eternity and God has given us hope One other thing that I would want to mention though, too, and we talked about this Wednesday night, uh, just never to forget the tragedy of the murder of the unborn children in our nation. Almost 50 years ago, uh, laws were changed in the direction that allowed uh, for abortion on demand. Uh, It has resulted in the loss of 60 some million children uh, out of this nation alone, and it's a tragedy. And we pray that God will turn hearts and that this would end, not gradually, not uh, uh, incrementally, but that the murder of abortion would end and this would be done in our nation. So we have much to pray about and many opportunities and many battles to face, but we have the Word of God. And you all are sitting here for the next 45 minutes or so I hope that doesn't come as a shock and a disappointment. (laughs) For the next 45 minutes, you're going to be trying to grasp. I will be trying to grasp with you the actions, the words, and the thoughts of Jesus Christ. The man who was God, he is God-man. And we're going to look at the people around him during the last three days of his life. Talk about finality. Jesus is well aware that he has only three days left on this earth to live. We're going to look at this and we have to remember too that this takes place thousands and thousands of miles from here, oceans away from us 2,000 years ago. We need prayer. We need prayer. We need a supernatural tool so that we can somehow see the mind of God and understand what it is that He is about. Who is He? And I hope you've come this morning to see what in the world this story in the scriptures has to do with you you see the words that we are looking at this morning are the actual grasp this actual translation of the words that God spoke himself during his physical life as a man on earth these are the words that he said and they are the words that God spoke to the man named Mark the man who believed Jesus was God in the flesh and followed him He is also a man who was chosen by God to be given these words so that we would have them. This word we look at, it is more than an historical chronicle. It is that, but it is far more. In fact, these words we are going to examine this morning are alive. They are powerful. And that's a strange thing to say about something like what we're looking at this morning. But it is unique and there is nothing like it. What we're looking at, what we're reading, what we're trying to understand is alive and it has power. It has power to change. It has power to save. It has power to give life. There is no document on earth like the Word of God that we are going to examine. So let us pray for just a moment and ask God to give His Spirit so that we can know Him. Heavenly Father, we come to You this morning. And we, the smartest of us, are very dull. We are very simple. And Lord, we need you, and and we're looking at, at the Word of God, the perfect Word of God, the inter, the eternal Word of Christ, and we want to see that, that, for what it is, Lord. We want to mine the gold, the riches that lie there, Lord, and and we can't do it on our own. So we ask, Father, that you would send your Spirit, that your Spirit would illumine our minds and our hearts, that your Spirit would aid us and. and and reveal to us, and and give us the truth of these matters that we're going to look at. Lord, we have much on our minds. Many things compete with, with you this morning. Forgive us. You are worthy of everything. And please draw us to you. Lord, please overrule and override my weaknesses, my failures, and speak, Lord God, speak to us. Amen. Jesus is in Jerusalem this morning he is there and he entered there about three days ago on the calendar that we've been looking at it the first of the week he came in and you remember as he came into Jerusalem he was hailed by thousands along the roadside as he rode in on this donkey and they saw him as a fulfillment of the prophecies that they had anticipated for centuries and here he comes in and, and they're going crazy He is king. He is being lauded. He is being believed to be the one who would finally come and release them from the oppression of Rome. And bring success, spiritual success to the land once again. The next day, Tuesday, he had totally demolished the Temple Bazaar. That Temple Bazaar that served as an added income stream for the high priest. This sacrilegious money and animal sacrifice market had turned the house of prayer into, what did Jesus call it? A den of thieves. A house of crooks. That's what it is. And Jesus had cleared the temple of this desecration and returned it to a place of worship, at least temporarily. Now, Jesus is facing the angry backlash of all that that he has done from the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. This group of 71 religious elites ruled Jewish life, and especially this temple, this temple that Jesus had so boldly commandeered the day before. Earlier in the day, a Sanhedrin contingent of chief priests, scribes, and elders confronted Jesus, demanding an answer to where he got his authority to do these things. Shortly after that, a group of Pharisees and Herodians were sent to trap him. Trap him with this thorny question on taxes and government support. And still without success, the Sanhedrin launched some Sadducees at Jesus with a bizarre scenario about heaven, which they did not even believe in. And a woman who theoretically married seven successive husbands who also successively died, leaving no children from any of them. But Jesus, he yielded no ground in any battle. As for authority, he finished that discussion off by declaring in Mark chapter 12, verse 10 and 11. And he said to them, have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Regarding the legitimacy of paying taxes, he told the Pharisees and Herodians in verse 17 of Mark chapter 12. Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. That are God's. And the Nemesis, they marveled at him. They couldn't under, understand how he came up with these things, how he could thwart every attack they made. They marveled at him. And to the afterlife-denying Sadducees and this preposterous marriage and death setup, Jesus again took them to the book, quoting in verses 26 and 27. But concerning the dead that they rise have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage how God spoke to him saying I am the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob he is not the God of the dead but the God of the living you are therefore greatly mistaken. When will these religious hypocrites learn? Haven't they had enough? Almost But they try one more public confrontation, hoping to trap Jesus. But in this trap, in this test, Jesus ends up giving the greatest comprehensive command ever uttered on this planet. Every attack on him turned out to be an opportunity for him to proclaim who he was. So let's begin. Then one of the scribes came in verse 28. And we get a little more background on this from Matthew 22. It's a parallel passage. Speaks of the same event. So then one of the scribes came. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees regarding the afterlife and marriage scenario, the Pharisees gathered together. And then one of them, a lawyer, which is a scribe, having heard them, the Sadducees and Jesus, reasoning together and perceiving that Jesus had answered them well, Asked Jesus a question, testing him. Which is the first commandment of all? Which is the first commandment of all? You see, the man asking the question is a scribe, called by Matthew a lawyer. Now these guys are the professional scholars of the Old Testament. Scribes excelled at knowing and applying the law of God. They were also experts concerning the law and traditions of the scribes and Pharisees. We can imagine that this guy was likely a very sharp fellow. And he takes a bold step and initiates contact with Jesus. And it's apparent that although he is coming to test Jesus he is also willing to listen. He hears this this reasoning, and some of your versions are more accurate to say this debate or this argument. He hears this going on between the Sadducees and this lone man, Jesus. The scribe is impressed. These Sadducees, they're the sophisticated rulers of religion. They are the ones from whom the high priests are bred. He comes from the Pharisees And this man, this scribe understands that his guys, the Pharisees, and their usual enemies, the Sadducees, have recently teamed up to try to kill Jesus. The scribe knows, he knows this is a high stakes life and death confrontation. Now Jesus is really answering these religious attackers, kalos, which means well, or in a morally good way, with honesty. That's how Jesus is responding. And after witnessing the authority and wisdom Jesus displayed in this conflict, the scribe seems to approach Jesus with more sincerity than any of the past religious opponents. There's an interesting feel of, of what's going on here as this man approaches Jesus. And then in another bold action, the scribe now initiates discussion. He's willing to bring this to Jesus. Jesus. While his mind is spinning and taking in all that he has just witnessed, he asks Jesus, which is the first commandment of all? Now, we know this is a huge question. But it is a lot huger or bigger and a lot more significant than we might think at first. This is not simply a question of chronology that asks, which is the first commandment that God gave? Nor is it a request to rate the commandments one to ten. And tell me which one you would put at number one. This is a far greater question that he is asking. It's what one commandment supersedes and encompasses all commands God has given. What is the supreme overarching command of God? One writer put it this way. What is the single most important commandment that God has given to this world? It is an a unlimited question about the command of God. You see, rabbis, rabbis had discovered that there were 613 commands in the first five books of the Old Testament. It's called the Pentateuch and it was written by Moses. 613. Now, being students of detail that these Pharisees work 613 just happens to equal the same number of Hebrew letters contained in the Ten Commandments. It's interesting. 613, 613. Now, 248 of these commandments were positive things you must do. 365 were negative commands, things not to do. And in these 613 commands, there were also levels of significance. Some were considered heavy laws, and some were considered light the heavy were those that were more important and carried more severe enforcement now you can imagine that there was a constant bickering and disagreement among the scribes and Pharisees over which were the heavy and which were the light and that may seem not a right way to handle commandments but see Jesus actually made this kind of distinction as well in Matthew chapter 23 verse 23 through 24 Jesus said woe to you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. In other words, Jesus said there were certain laws or commands that were gnats and some were camels. The scribe's strategy here appears to have been to trap Jesus into admitting his own independent and unorthodox interpretation of the law and how it conflicted with the law of Moses. Is Jesus going to fall into this trap? The rulers would then accuse Jesus of heresy and blasphemy and Jesus would be completely discredited in the eyes of his adoring public. And the great question from the scribe is followed by the greatest answer. Hear Jesus. The first of all the commandments is Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now there's required context that Jesus gives. Jesus answers by quoting God's word Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It is a portion of Old Testament scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And it is called the Shema, which means to hear. It is recited every morning and evening by faithful Jews. See, what Jesus does in his reply is he anchors his answer to the word of God and to the God of that word. In New Testament Greek, it reads kurios theos. Lord God. But in the original Hebrew from the Old Testament book Jesus was quoting. It is Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh. That means as we studied in Joshua. We studied in the Old Testament. The covenant keeping personal Lord of God's people. This was the name he gave himself for them. He is their God. They are his people. Elohim means the almighty, the supreme God. You see the answer Jesus was about to supply to the scribes question must be preceded and qualified and set in context. This command is uttered by the creator by the omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent God. The command given is fully subservient and motivated by the existence and character of the one Yahweh God Almighty who decreed it. The command itself will be meaningless without the reality of this one who commands it it is God the eternal uncreated creator who has spoken this it is contained in his word now let us go back to the source of the quote Jesus gave turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 1 through 5 it's the fifth book of the Old Testament We will see precisely here why Jesus started his response about the great command with the introduction and proclamation of Yahweh. It's so vitally important. Chapter 6 verse 1, now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you. That you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. Here Moses explains that he is going to give them additional commands. That God has commanded him to teach them. Their role, they are to do them. And then he says, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God. To keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you. All the days of your life. And that your days may be prolonged. O Israel you should listen and be careful to do it that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly just as the Lord the God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. What is that? That's a description of the great rewards of obedience. God fearing children and grandchildren prolonged days of life a growing increase in number a rich and overflowing land to live in. Moses spells out the abundant consequences of obedience and all this is set up by Moses to arrive at the vital starting point, the starting point of the commands, the same starting point that Jesus began with. Hear O Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And and I don't think I can overemphasize this part of what Christ is saying. He is saying, listen, O nation of Israel, Yahweh, our Father, Shepherd, covenant-making God, is our Elohim, our mighty God. He is not contingent upon our obedience or even our existence. He is who He is. He is who He is, if and when we depart in sin and rebellion and go our own way. He is one. He is complete. He is full. He is not made up of many parts or any parts. He is one. He is unified, complete being who rules over all that He has created. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. The first command, verse 30, is our vertical relationship with our God. The vertical relationship with our God. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And he begins with, You shall. Now, one study note. And some of your Bibles made this interpretation of the account. Said the faithful covenant keeping God asks the objects of his love to love him and other human beings too. I ask you is that true? He does no such thing. When God commanded this to the children of Israel, and as Jesus declares this to be the great command, it is in no way couched as a request or a strong suggestion. You shall. God commands that we love Him. This is what is called an imperative. It is a command. And the command, first of all, is that we shall love. It's the word agapao. It is the love God has. It is sacrificial. It is unconditional. It is determined by the will. It is determined by choice with selfless purpose for the one being loved. It demonstrates obedience and it is volitional. It is not phileo love. That is a love of strong friendship. An emotionally compelled love. We wrote this about Agapao. He said. It is a love that impels one. To sacrifice one's self. For the benefit of the object loved. It speaks of a love. Which is awakened. By a sense of value. In the object loved. An apprehension of its preciousness. Because of the inherent. Attributes of this amazing love. Agapao. It requires all of our faculties. All of our abilities, the listing here, the listing here of heart, soul, mind, and strength are meant to emphasize that it is the totality of all our being that must love God. Nothing is left out. It is complete. It is full. Loving Yahweh is to be the core, the very center of who we are as His children. All of our identity is to be wrapped up in Yahweh. In Christ, He is all we are if we are His. He is not a part of us or a piece of us, like for a while on Sunday morning, or when I am with Christians, or when I am lonely or doing well, or, or feeling spiritual, or listening to a certain song or, or even reading scripture and praying. He is with us constantly and we are in His presence. He is to be ours fully always. We are to love Him with all our heart. If the soul here is to represent emotion, we are to love the Lord God with all of our soul, all of our emotion. The command is to love Yahweh with all our mind. We are to be conscious of His very presence at all times, knowing that nothing is hidden from His sight, but all things are naked and open to Him. Even our thoughts, our decisions, our questions, our investigations, our research, our conclusions, our deductions are to be His. Whatever we do with our mind, whatever we do with our physical abilities and strength, belong to Him and are be done in love to Him. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, he says, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Do all to the glory of God. Now notice the repeated phrase in this command. And if you look at this carefully, you will see it repeated four times. With all your. The word all. What is that telling us? It's telling there is no reservation. Nothing is to be held back in any of our means of love to the Lord God. All. We are all in. With all your. Your, it is your heart, soul, mind and strength. And this is an important word and you'll see more about this in just a moment. It it is not rented, borrowed, loaned or stolen from another. It is not a love that you express through the representation of someone else like a priest or an elder or a parent or a spouse. You, you have a heart and a soul. You have a mind, you have strength. And that is to love Yahweh your God. Love Him with all of everything you have been blessed to have. One person, one commentator said that such a person demonstrates his love by meditating on God's glory. By trusting in God's divine power. Seeking fellowship with God. Loving God's law. Loving God. What God loves. Loving whom God loves. Hating what God hates. Grieving over sin. Rejecting the world. Longing to be with Christ. And obeying God wholeheartedly. In short he goes on to say. It is a comprehensive. All consuming love. And singular adoration. God's wholehearted love for believers. Must not be reciprocated. With half hearted devotion. End quote. And Jesus then says, and the second, the second like it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that too is taken from an Old Testament book. It's from Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18. The second command is the horizontal relationship with your neighbor. God's image bearer. Everyone in this room, everyone you will see as you leave this building was made in the image of God we are horizontally to love our neighbor Jesus says it is second it comes underneath the first commandment because all praise, adoration and recognition of the Lord God must always be the supreme priority for he is God he is the Lord God almighty and he is one and we and our neighbors are not But why does he say the second is like it? How is this short, human-focused second command similar in any way to the glorious and expanded command to love the Lord your God? Where's the similarity here? Look at it. What do you see? Because although the object of the command is different, your God versus your neighbor, the verb is the same. We are to love Agapao, our Yahweh God. And we are to Agapao, selflessly, sacrificially, willfully love our neighbor. (coughs) So what does this look like? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 12, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law of of the prophets. Paul wrote, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself let each of you look not out only for his own interests but also the interests of others then Jesus said in John's gospel chapter 15 <coughs> greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends so we have the golden rule we have the esteeming others better than ourselves and then we are to lay our lives down For each other. Now, the next question, though, is how far does Jesus expect us to go with this agapao love to neighbors? First John four, verse nineteen, says, "We love him because he first loved us." If someone says, "I love God," and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen. How can he love God whom he has not seen? How far does it go? Well, first of all, it goes to we are to love believers who are joined with us in the body of Christ. We are to love fellow believers who we find in the body of Christ. But let's look at Luke 10, verse 25. Turn over there with me. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up, a scribe, and tested him, which is what the guy this morning is doing with Jesus again. And he said, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Well, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. And what has Jesus told him? Be perfect and you will have eternal life. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And what story does Jesus tell him then? What do we call it? Pardon? The Good Samaritan. The story of the Good Samaritan. And we know how that story goes. It's uh, very convicting to those who heard it. Why was this so hard for the lawyers and scribes to take? Why not help a poor Samaritan? He's different culture. I don't naturally like him. I don't hang out with him. I don't really know him. In fact, I despise him. Secondly, we are to love people who we don't really know and don't really naturally like. Now for the final and really big hurdle to get over, turn to Matthew 5, verses 43 through 46. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Thirdly, we are to love people, people who hate us, people who persecute us. We are to love them like we love ourselves. James calls this something really special in James chapter 2, verse 8. He says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. The royal law. Now this should not be taken as an implied way of saying you must first learn to love yourself. Jesus is not saying that. The scriptures make the opposite assumption. Men love themselves constantly. They, the command here is to love our neighbor. So don't, don't get over into something else. This is to love our neighbor more than ourself. Esteem them higher. Then Jesus describes these commands. In verse 31, the first part, he says, There is no other commandment greater than these. The supremacy of this command. Nothing is greater. It is the greatest. And then he gives the authority of the command. And this actually takes place in Matthew 22. Jesus included this comment. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now if you will take just five minutes... And go to Exodus chapter 20 this afternoon and look at the Ten Commandments. You will find that the first four commandments are those that have to do with our relationship vertically with God. The next six are those relationships horizontally with fellow man. So the great command which Jesus gave the scribe in this passage covers it all. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God. And there is no other but he. And so we come to man's meager response. And we find a mortal agrees with God. Isn't that interesting? Complimenting God on something he has just told us. Uh, a mortal agrees with God. Responding to Jesus' profound and impossibly challenging answer. This inquisitive scribe agrees with the supreme superior superiority of the person of Yahweh. Kalos, he says, well said. Obedience must begin with the Lord who rules everything, who has always existed and needs nothing. Yahweh Elohim reigns. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the soul and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. But then we have a mere rehearsal of the truth. Being a student of the Old Testament, This scribe himself understood the truth of Jesus' command. And he sees a central place of the heart for true worship of God. Without this, sacrifices and burnt offerings are useless. Now this is a big admission for a scribe. He and his fellow religious leaders invest themselves constantly and are, are devoted to these sacrifices and burnt offerings. They were the first offerings, the burnt offerings, to be described in Scripture, and they are the most frequently offered in Scripture. Every morning and evening, every Sabbath, the first day of each month, and at the special feasts, burnt offerings were presented. They were the staple of the Jewish worship system. The animal offered was completely incinerated to symbolize full sacrifice to God. Nothing was left. But the Old Testament prophets had already declared how worthless they were without the right heart behind them. Samuel Samuel wrote, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Isaiah wrote, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? Says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or the of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meetings. Your new moons and your pointed feasts my soul hates. They are trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. And then the prophet Hosea, chapter 6:6, 6, 6. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. The knowledge of God. It just pricks in my conscience. How much investment do we make to have the knowledge of God? How much investment are you making to have the knowledge of God? That is what He desires. Now, when Jesus saw that He answered wisely, Jesus makes here a moving admonition the scribe. A moving admonition from Jesus and you see twice the scribe has recognized that Jesus answered with grace and honesty. He has said that to him. Now Jesus makes an observation of the answer from the scribe and the scripture says he saw that the scribe answered him wisely it can be translated as discreetly or intelligently the man had listened and he had considered and he had responded to the truth of Jesus' words, and Jesus makes a right evaluation of the man's mind, an evaluation of his mind. And he said to him, "You are not far from the kingdom of God." But after that, no one dared question him. Now this is actually a very imposing declaration of status that Jesus gives to the scribe. It may seem like a compliment, and in some ways it's that he could have said far worse. But it is damning. Look what is said here. Jesus' words are a kind and honest challenge to the scribe. He has indeed understood things that his predecessor, scribes, Pharisees, and religious leaders had missed altogether. He has seen the integrity and wisdom of Jesus and given agreement to what Jesus has said. But there is something missing. There is something missing in the scribe's agreement with Jesus. And I think it is small, but it is hugely significant. Look with me as a student of the Word, verse 30 and verse 33. What is the difference from verse 30 in Jesus' command and the scribe's recap in verse 33? Look carefully. Jesus uses the word your. It is, listen to this carefully, it is a second person possessive pronoun in the genitive case and modifies the word heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now what that boils down to for us, most of us who didn't invest a whole lot or recall a whole lot from our English grammar, is that Jesus calls for a personal commitment. Your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. The scribes answer almost exactly the same. But in place of the word your, he uses the or the. It is a definite article. The heart, the soul, the mind, the strength show no personal commitment or actually association at all. That is why I labeled verse 33 in the outline as a mere rehearsal of the truth. The scribe answered intelligently, discreetly, but not humbly or submissively. Here is the scribe. He is an expert in the scriptures. He is a legal scholar of the Old Testament. Yet he is still not in the kingdom. He is not far from it. But at this point, he is still outside of that kingdom. That kingdom that now is inhabited by former thieves, former prostitutes, centurions, lepers, criminal Jews, hopeless Gentiles. Some of those in that kingdom of God the scribe considered to be his family. But others he had known as dogs and enemies. He was not far from the kingdom of God, but he was not in the actual entry to that kingdom stood right before him in living flesh. I am the door, said Jesus. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, said Jesus. There was an old adage once used by some of us at times "Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades but heaven heaven requires perfection heaven requires perfect obedience to the great commandments that Jesus just gave the scribe no amount of knowledge of spiritual truth or even agreement with spiritual truth will save him or anyone else They must love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and their neighbor as themselves. But I ask you, how are you doing at that? This is the problem for us with this command. If it is the great commandment then what is the great sin? It would be disobedience to the great command. Failure to keep it. As many before me have confessed, and I do too, there has not been one full moment of time, not an hour, not a minute, where I have fulfilled the first command to love God selflessly, sacrificially, willfully with all the depth of my heart. My soul has never been filled to overflowing with affection for God. My poor mind has been everywhere from glazed over to envy to worldly lust, covetousness, confusion, self obsession. And how much of my physical strength have I truly given in pursuit of loving my Lord? By no means all. And I haven't even gotten to the second command, and I am hopelessly lost and guilty of violating the greatest command Jesus ever gave. You see, I and you need that man standing before the scribe just as much as he did. I need Jesus or I remain not far from the kingdom. Last night, we spoke with a young man and it was interesting, we kind of took a, a little bit different tact and we walked up the ramp to this one bar that's sort of notorious as being a gay bar. There's nothing gay about it. It's full of men and women that are trapped and that are dying, awaiting their burial until Christ comes and saves them, if you will. But we, we reached out to him and, and he really showed interest and we were able to talk to him for quite a long period of time about the gospel. And he seemed so intent and sincere with what we were saying. It really shocked us, surprised us. And at the end, he, he took the literature we had to give and he said, I will read this. And he seemed bent on doing that. And then we walked away and this story kept ringing in my mind. Here he was in this place totally lost as in his own admission, no relationship with God, couldn't care less about tomorrow. And somehow it seemed the word of God was gripping his mind and his thoughts. And as we walked away, we stopped and we then prayed for him. That the enemy wouldn't snatch away what had been deposited there from the word of God. Because for a moment there, he was close, not far from the kingdom of God. But he was not in. And we pray that he will be. This is a picture of some of us. We know. We know like a scribe. Maybe not quite as well as he did. But we know how the gospel goes. We know what is required. We know the content. And we've given intellectual assent. To this is true. Jesus is the son of God. I am a sinner. I need Christ. But we haven't placed our faith in him we haven't come and followed jesus we haven't abandoned ourselves to be his the scribe walked away empty others with nothing comparatively no understanding about who god was became sons and daughters by repenting and trusting in this king this messiah who stood before them This is a great command. There's only one way that that it can ever be a part of our lives. You see, we come to Christ empty as one of the songs said this morning. But not just empty, we're full of of sin and, and things that condemn us to hell. For the Bible says the wages of sin is death. We have no hope. We are condemned because of our sin. And we come with that And Jesus offers to pay the price for that sin if we will trust in him. And that, brothers and sisters, enables us to fulfill this command. For while there is no man on earth who has ever completed the law of God, who has fulfilled the law of God, there is one who did. And that was the man we studied this morning, Jesus Christ. He came to fulfill the law, to complete it, to do it. I can't say for five minutes I've done what was commanded here. Jesus never did not do that. He always loved the Father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he loved everyone he met. When you come to Christ, if you will repent of your past and turn and trust in Jesus, you will be given the fulfillment of Christ. He will be given his robe of righteousness. His full completion of the law. His love for the Father that we just can't conjure up will become yours through Jesus Christ. Don't miss this opportunity. Don't remain not far from the kingdom. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for exactly, specifically what you have written down for us. Father, where I may have I led astray. Please forgive me. Please push that away. But I pray that your Holy Spirit would awaken our hearts for those that love you and know you to pursue this kind of love because it has been fulfilled in Christ for us and it is our opportunity, our privilege now to be sanctified, to become more and more like this command requires. Thank you, Lord God. But Father, I pray for those who have resisted you Who have known about you who have known all, all about the gospel and the word but still remain outside Father I pray that you would grant them a new heart that they would come humbly and abandon themselves to follow Jesus for you are worthy for eternity in your name we pray amen